Good morning. Well, I must say, I have been very anxious and nervous this past week as I prayed and prepared and read and studied uh, to share with you this morning. Um, <clears throat> I want to start off with something a little bit different. And um, I want to ask you, if, if you feel comfortable doing this, if you would just stand up. And I'm going to ask for as you stand up, I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer of blessing over me. I'm going to ask you to do that, and then I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing back over you. And so if you feel comfortable and you want to stand up and, and put your hand out, and we're going to take just a few, just a short time for you to pray quietly in your heart, asking for a blessing over me. And then DR, I'm going to get you to voice a prayer out loud on behalf of the congregation from where you're at. Don't come up here. And then I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing over you. So if you, want, if you feel comfortable, stand up. And uh, I'm going to ask for that from you this morning. Father in heaven, Lord, I lift up this time to you this morning. I pray for each one of us, Lord. I pray that you loose my lips, loose my tongue, that I may speak your truth, that I may speak the power of your gospel, of your message, the word that you've given me this morning. Lord, please grant me clarity of thought, vision, and understanding, the ability to speak clearly and communicate for the power of your name. Lord, if I must be shamed this morning, may that shame be somehow for your glory, for the glory of your name. If I must be honored, Lord, may that honor be for your name. May the truth and the power of your word and your message this morning Break forth into the hearts and the minds of everyone here, Lord. I pray your blessing over each and every person sitting here in this auditorium. I pray for their hearts, for their minds to be softened and opened up to hear the message that you have for us this morning, Lord. Whatever it may be, Lord, I've spent time praying and preparing and and getting ready. Lord, grant me the ability to recall and to remember Think clearly through all the thoughts that you've given me, all the things that are jumbling and tossing around in my mind this morning, that they may come out clearly and in a fluid and tangible message, Lord, that not just gives us information, Lord, that not just gives us something interesting to think about, Lord, but may the truth and the power of your word, of your words, Lord, change us. May we be changed, Lord, by who you are. Not by a message, not by a sermon, but by the truth and the power of your glory and your goodness for the sake of your kingdom here in Kerrville, Texas, Lord. We pray that this morning. We ask or we beg for your help. We beg for your presence this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a kindergarten teacher. Um, she was... She was um, teaching Sunday school class, a kindergarten teacher teaching Sunday school class, and she asked her, her um, kids to draw a picture, and one little girl, she started drawing a picture, and the teacher came around, and she said, well, now, what is this? And she said, oh, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the lady said, the teacher, she said, well, sweetie, you know, nobody really knows what God looks like. And the little girl said, well, they will in a minute. <laughs> so I hope this morning, uh, when we're done here, whether it's because of our time in worship together, praising our Father, whether it's because of an encouraging word that a brother gave you or a sister gave you, whether it's because of um, just time spent in fellowship together, or maybe it's something that, that I bring out today in the message. But for some reason, I pray this morning that you will know better what God looks like. Another story that, that 
touched me as I was getting ready. A little boy was watching his father, who was a preacher. He was watching his dad get ready for the sermon for the next week. And he saw his dad writing down notes and, you know, and putting things down on paper. And he said, Dad, how do you know what to say? You know, he's kind of a little boy. And his dad said, well, son, God tells me what to say. And the boy, he thought about that for a minute. And he looked at his dad's paper and he said, well, Dad, if God tells you what to say, how come you cross some of it out? (laughs) So... I don't know if I'll cross anything out this morning. I've got a lot of stuff jumbled up in my mind. So many things that I want to share with you. So many things that God has placed on my heart this week. We're going to be looking at the prodigal son. And it it is a story that is full and rich with so much. There's no way that I could could cover all of it. There's no way that I could share everything with you that I want to. But um, I pray that God will grant me wisdom. Grant me discernment and clarity of thought to, to share with you this morning what he has for us, his truth. So <clears throat> I want to um, I want to start off with something else. This is uh, uh, another little bit strange. Okay, th- this is this is different. I, I like to think outside the box. I like to try new things, new approaches, new ideas. So this is my cell phone number. I've got my cell phone right here. I'm going to ask you if you want to. This is not for everybody. I understand that. So if you want to, get your cell phone out. Open up your text messaging app, your message app, and put my phone number in as if you're ready to text me. And in a minute, I'll have a question for you. And if you want to respond to the question, you can respond to it in text, and I'll see it right here, and it'll be an interactive sermon. We're going to try it out. Let's see how it goes, okay? Uh, one, more, one, more, one more little story, cute story, that, that just I just thought was great. Um, Another, another Sunday school teacher, she was, you know, with her, her young class, kindergartners probably, and she said, now, if I, if I was to have a garage sale, and I sold all of my stuff, and I took all that money, and I gave all that money to the poor, would I go to heaven? And all the little kids, they said, no. And she said, okay, well, if I come to church every Sunday and every Wednesday, will I go to heaven? And they said, no. And she said, well, if I pray every day and I read my Bible every day, will I go to heaven? And they said, no. And she said, well, then what do I have to do to go to heaven? And one little boy, without missing a beat, he said, you got to be dead. (laughs) You got to be dead. Well, all right, you got to be dead. Interesting. I don't believe that. And I hope also today through this message, we're going to be looking at the prodigal son, but also I want, I want to put the prodigal son in, in context. I want you to think about some other stories that are right along with the prodigal son. We have the story of the, the coin and the lost sheep. And in, in um, Luke 14, the donkey that fell down a well. And in Luke 5, this large catch of fish that, that Jesus tells them to throw your net on the other side. They get all this fish, and then Jesus says, come, you're going to be fishers of men. Um, <clears throat> throughout, throughout these stories, there is not just a story of lost and found, a theme of lost and found, but also of joy and service for the kingdom. And we see that the kingdom of God... The kingdom of heaven is not just something for the future life, for the afterlife, when we die and we go up to wherever that is. But the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is something that is breaking into the world right now. And the way that it's doing that is through us, 
through his people, through his children. And so what do I have to do to get to heaven? You've got to be dead. Well, there will be a time when we pass from this life into the next and we will experience a joy we can't comprehend. We will experience a life and a reality that is greater than anything that we've ever known. But I also believe that God and Jesus are calling us to be salt and light here on this planet, in this time, that his kingdom and his glory can break into our lives, break into our communities, break into our world for his glory, that the kingdom of heaven can happen now. And the only way it can happen is through us. Um, so I want to start off, yeah, just leave it right there. Um, so my first question, and if you want to text, we're talking about the prodigal son. What does the word prodigal mean? Don't, don't Google it. Don't look it up. We're not, we're not doing all that. <laughs> just text a brief answer if you want to. Text me what... Well, that was fast. Oh, somebody said you're doing great. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay, we've got a lot. Lost, returning, uh, lost, lost, gone astray, gone astray, troubled, wayward, gone away. Wow, this is awesome. Troubled, wayward, gone away, um, lost and returning. Okay, these are awesome, but they're all wrong. Sorry. <laughs> now somebody is going to Google it, and I can't stop them. Prodigal, prodigal means wasteful. It means, I wrote down some words here, it means luxurious, extravagant, imprudent is a very good word for prodigal. Liberal, unstinting, unsparing, bounteous. So all these things together, not just luxurious, but extravagant and wasteful. It has this, this connotation, this feeling of, of too much. Of You've got all this and you're just wasting it. A bounty and a luxuriousness, but wasteful, just spending so the title of the sermon this morning is Prodigal Love. Is it possible for God to be prodigal with his love? Is it possible for God to be wasteful with the bounty of his love? Can he do that? Does he ever waste his luxurious and extravagant grace? I don't think so. I don't think so. And we see that through this story. What a, what a wonderful, wonderful story. Jesus, if you look throughout the parables, you'll see that Jesus, he loves to start with uh, the animal kingdom or nature and then turn it to, to humanity, turn it to people. I mentioned, you know, uh, Luke 5. He starts off with this fish, this catch of fish. And then he tells Peter, you're going to be a fisher of men. In 14, he talks about a donkey falling down a well. And then he turns that into God seeking after his children. And in Luke 15, we see he starts off with a lost coin and a lost sheep. And then he turns to a prodigal son, a lost son, a wayward son, a troubled son. All these things that people said. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to show you a few really interesting things about the way that the prodigal son is set up. That maybe you haven't noticed before. If you'll go to the next slide. So the, the, the story, the first part of the story is a, is a setup of, of 12 different stanzas or verses that we'll say. And the first one is about a son who is lost and he's saying, give me my share. The second one, we see goods wasted on extravagant living. In the third verse, we see everything is lost. He spent 
everything, and he began to be in want. The fourth one, the great sin. He's feeding pigs for Gentiles. What was it like for a Jewish boy to feed pigs and to be employed by a Gentile? Five, total rejection. This this verse, this passage, if you stop and think for a moment, this boy who is away from home on his own in a foreign land, a foreign country, he is a complete and utter failure. He has lost everything. He's wasted all the money he had. All of his friends have turned against him. He has nothing. And no one gave him anything. The Greek actually is it's, it's written in a way that it says, and no one was giving to him. It almost sounds as if he had tried begging and even failed at that. It's pathetic. It's horrible. In the sixth, verse, sixth stanza, we see a change of mind. He came to himself and he says, I perish here. So that's the first half. That's what ha- It's leading up to this sense of a climax. What's going to happen? Then we go to the next, the next scene, the next half of the passage. He has an initial repentance where he says to himself, I'll go back and ask to be a servant. Make me a servant. And then we see it in verse 5b, which we'll see in a minute, the correlation. Total acceptance. His father ran and kissed him. And the next one. The great repentance, he says, I'm not worthy to be called a son. Then everything is gained, a robe, ring, shoes for his feet. There's a restoration to sonship. And finally, or no, goods used in joyful celebration. And finally, a son is found. My son was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. Okay, go ahead. We'll go through the next ones kind of quick. We'll see that the first one, 6a and b, in the, middle of the, in the middle of the passage, the middle of the story, they connect, they correlate together. There's a change of mind where he says, I perish here, and an initial repentance. And in 5, 5 and 5, they correlate. First, there's total rejection. No one gives him anything. But then, in the second half, there's a total acceptance. His father runs to him and hugs him and kisses him. In 4, the great sin, feeding pigs for Gentiles. And in 4b, the great repentance. In 3, everything is lost. And in 3b, everything is gained. Do you see how it's being undone? I saw a video once on YouTube. I don't know if it was real or not. But they had this, it looked like a jar of Cairo syrup. It was some sort of thick, clear liquid. And they dropped some uh, food coloring drops into it. And then they, they already had a paddle inserted into, the, into this liquid. And they slowly turned the paddle, and it, it moved the coloring around in the liquid. And they made like two or three revolutions. I don't remember how many. Not very many. Maybe one and a half. And then they stopped it, and they backed it up. This is where I don't know if it was real. They backed it up, and the coloring went back to where it was, to a drop. Now, they said that they didn't reverse the video, that they really had done it. And they had a clock running to show you. But... It, this is what it reminds me of. There's, there's a, a restoration, a reconciling, an atonement that is made through the story. Everything lost and then everything is gained. Two, goods wasted on extravagant living. This son, so wasteful. And goods used in joyful celebration. The wasteful love of the father. And finally, in one, it starts with a son being lost and it ends with a son being found. My son was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. 
What, what a wonderful story. What a wonderful story to see the way that God is working. And I want to I suggest to you that this story is not so much about a one-to-one correlation of characters. You know, the father is God, the son, the younger son is a sinner, the older son is a Pharisee. Um, while there may be some connections there and some correlations, I want to suggest that it's just a, it's more a characterization of types of people. And that from time to time, we're all able to connect with different characters. We're all able to relate with the younger son. At times in our lives, we're able to relate with the older son. And maybe even at times in our lives, we're able to relate to the father and the extravagant love, gracious care and compassion of the father. I want to run through this story real quick and just share with you a few of the cultural things that, that, that are present that, that make it so powerful. When we look at, at a couple of things, I want you to see about the older son. So if you want to turn to Luke 15, you can look at, um, at verse 25. And this is, it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what, what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. When I, as I read through this story and as I think about it, I cannot help but think of our, our lives in Thailand and all the things, experiences that we had and all the things we went to. Our neighbors, right, right next door, right across, we lived, had a little dirt road. It was a little dead-end dirt road that we lived on. And our house was on this side and our neighbors on the other side. And we quickly, very quickly became friends and then family with these neighbors. And they were an older couple, about the, about the age of my parents. And they have a, a daughter who's our age and a son-in-law who's our age. And so very quickly they became like parents to us and grandparents to the boys. And they had a big, huge yard. We had a big, huge yard. But before you know it, the boundary of their yard and our yard disappeared and it just became yard. It was just everyone's yard. And we would ride bikes throughout our yard and their yard. We would play sports and football and, and soccer and throw frisbees and uh, all sorts of things. And, and as grandparents will do, they quickly learned what each of my boys liked. And they quickly learned how to use those things, whether it be a treat. They learned that Tegan loves sticky rice. And so... Grandpa Pot was his name, and Grandma Mao. And Grandpa Pot would come out with sticky rice and say, Tegan, in Thai. He'd say, Tegan, Tegan, khao niao, khao niao, makin khao niao mai. That means, you want some sticky rice? You want some sticky rice? Anything to entice Tegan to come over and just get a hug from him. He just wanted to give him a hug. He just wanted to be near him. Or when we went to eat a meal at their house, they knew that the boys loved Fanta. So they'd have orange Fanta and green Fanta and red Fanta and blue Fanta and all that. And me and Tanya were going, no. But they're saying, yes. <laughs> and they're filling up their cups, giving them all the Fanta. And snacks and cakes and cookies. They always have things for the boys. And so I think about, I think about that, our lives together, the way they were so entwined. And I think about all the meals that we shared at their house. And it's so interesting because we would, sometimes we would be sitting at home. And we're trying to figure out what we're going to eat for dinner. 
and talking, what are we going to have? You want to, I don't know, sandwiches? You want to make something? And we're tired. And, and there'd be, all of a sudden, the window would open. And one of the cousins or the nephews, somebody would say, in Thai, they'd say, Chris, Tanya, come on, it's time to eat. And Grandpa Pot and Grandma Mao, well, Grandma Mao, Grandpa Pot didn't cook, but Grandma Mao, she had made dinner. And they were saying, come on, come eat. Just an impromptu, hey, you're part of the family, come eat with us. And sometimes we'd, we'd be tired and we'd kind of lay there for a minute, sit there. Maybe we're watching TV or we're just talking, playing a game, and we didn't feel like getting out. And if we waited more than about 10 minutes, guess what happened? Somebody was back, opening the window, saying, hey, come on, it's time to eat. So here we go. We gather up everybody and we'd go out and we'd have a meal. And we lived across the street from our neighbors for almost seven years. And I, I, can't, I can't tell you how many meals we had at their house. Hundreds of meals that we shared with them. Some of them impromptu like that. Some of them uh, planned, organized. And then the parties and the weddings and the, and the births of children and the funerals and all the things. And when I read the story of the son, the older son coming home and there's a, there's a banquet, there's something happening. We had that happen to us many times. We'd, we'd come in in the evening. We've been out somewhere at the store or we've been visiting a friend or something. We come in, we pull in our street, tiny little street, and there's cars everywhere, there's music blaring, there's noise, there's people, and what's going on? There's a party at Grandpa Potts and Grandma Mouse. And when we pull into our driveway, I can promise you, if we don't make our way over there within a couple of minutes, there's going to be a few people coming over saying, come on, come on, we're having a party, come on. We don't have the choice. We don't have the option. We go to the party. And it's fun. And, and there's no, we don't break out the food and everybody sits down and eats together. You don't have this and then this and then this. No, it just happens. It's just a celebration. Food comes out and music's turned on. Some people are singing karaoke. Some people are eating. Some people are talking. It's just happening. It's a, it's a celebration, a joyous celebration. What are we celebrating? I don't know. Nobody knows. <laughs> We're just having a party. But that's what it's like for this, this older son when he comes home. He knows immediately that there is a joyful celebration. He, he recognizes this is not a funeral. This is not sad. He can tell that something good has happened. And what is his attitude? Cynical, questioning, frustrated. What's going on? He even gets one of the servants out in the street and he says, hey, what's happening? And he says, your brother, he came home. They're having a party. And the older brother, instead of Instead of running in, racing in with joy and happiness to welcome his brother home, he gets angry. And what does he do? He stays outside. Now, when I came home to my house in Thailand, and my neighbors are having a party, if I don't go over there immediately, they're going to send someone to say, come on. If I still don't go over, they're going to send someone back again. If I still refuse, I have to come up with some viable reason. Maybe I'm sick, the kids are sick, something's wrong. Maybe they'll understand. Their feelings will be hurt, but they'll understand. Now, if their own daughter or their own son comes home and refuses to attend the party, it's not just hurt feelings. It's a dishonor. It's a spitting in the face. It's a saying, no, I don't want to celebrate. I don't want to joy. I don't want to have joy. I don't want to be a part of what you're doing. I don't like this. It's a dishonor 
to the parents and the family because everyone sees that you're not coming in, that you're not willing to participate. And this is the older brother. This is what he's doing. And then the father comes out. Uh, The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Fathers, Fathers don't do that. Not in the Eastern culture. Not in this culture. Fathers don't go plead with their son. Son is lower. Father is higher. Father says, son does. That's it. A father doesn't leave. He said, amen. <laughs> Especially a father who is the host of a party. He doesn't leave the party to go out and, and beg his son to come in and join in the festivities. No, how embarrassing for the father. But this father does it. He goes out and he pleads with his son, please come in. And the son, he responds in a way that we miss as in our Western culture. We miss this, and that's okay, but we miss it. He leaves off the title. And it's interesting to me all the correlation between the Thai culture and this, this uh, Middle Eastern culture, the Jewish culture. You always have to have a title for people in, in the East. So like I say, Grandpa Pot and Grandma Mao, even though it's just Grandma and Grandpa, it's a title. It's a title of respect or father or uncle or big brother, or big sister. But there's always a title. It may be teacher. It may be doctor. Something. There's a title. And when I leave off the title, I do it on purpose. And I do it on purpose because I want to hurt their feelings. I want them to know I'm angry at them. I want to show them that I don't respect them. I want to show them that I'm mad. That's why I leave off the title. And that's what the son does. He doesn't say, Father. That's the title, Father. And it's a respectful, loving title. He leaves that off. What does the son say? But he answered his father, Look! Look here! And in the east, if you point... Now, I don't know if the son pointed, but if you point... I've seen, I've seen foreigners go into the, into the Thai embassy where they're trying to get documents for their passports and their visas... And everything was going okay, and there was a little bit of a discussion and a problem. And I've seen foreigners start to get upset and point and say, hey, you, you. As soon as that finger comes out, it is over. You can see the face of the Thai person. They shut down. They fold up papers. I've seen them just turn and walk away. And I guarantee you that person will not get their visa. They will not get the paperwork they need because the pointing finger and the, hey, look, you. It's like in, England, in America, if you're walking down the street and somebody says, hey, you. If I, if I look over here and, at Paul, I can say, Paul, hand me that book, please. Or I say, hey, you, give me that book. It doesn't, say, it doesn't feel very good, does it? You. And this is a son with his father. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and, you never, and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. This older brother, you've got the younger son. He goes and he says to his father, I want my inheritance. I want my money. And he takes off. And he goes and he's lost in a foreign country. He's estranged and he's lost. This older brother, he says to his father, I've been slaving for you. 
And you never even gave me a young goat. See, he thinks the party with the fattened calf, the older brother thinks that's an expression of his father's, what, what the father thinks the younger son is worth. He thinks the father is saying, the younger son is worth a fattened calf and a party. And the older son is saying, well, what about me? What about my work? What's my work worth? Don't I even get a goat? Aren't I worth anything to you? He's, he's choosing to be a slave. He's asking to be a servant without asking to be a servant. Give me my wages. When does a son ever ask for wages from a father? If everything I have is yours, the father says, everything that I have, all this is yours, how can I give you any more? But that's not how the son looks at it. He wants his payment because he views himself as a servant. He doesn't see himself as a son. He's just unwilling to say it. The younger son was an honest sinner. He told him what he thought. He told him where he was at, what was going on with him. But the older son, he was a hypocritical saint. He had it all put together. He, he even says, I never disobeyed your command, which is true. He never disobeyed his father's command. But he disobeyed the commandment to love. He disobeyed the commandment in his heart to love his father. And he says that I could celebrate with my friends. That statement is very telling. The father, he didn't have a party because he wanted to show what his younger son was worth. He had a party because there was joy and celebration. And in Greek, the father says to him, he says, My son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. And in English, it says, But we had to celebrate and be glad. In Greek, there's no pronoun there. And Thai is the same way. You can say things with, and not have a pronoun. So in Thai, we would say, Thong chalong, let me kwam shin chom yin di. And the, the English translation, which, is, which I think is a little bit more appropriate in this case, is he says, You're, everything I have is yours, but there has to be celebration and glad tidings of joy. There must be celebration. Not we must celebrate. There must be. It just has to be. Because he's home. For him, the celebration is, a, is an expression of the joy that is already there. And he's inviting his older son to come and be a part of it. And he's not just inviting him to be a part of it, but he's inviting him to be a host. To be a host in the party, in the celebration. When we had been in Thailand for about less than a year, we were living in our house and we'd made pretty good friendships, relationships with our neighbors already. And... Uh, Grandpa Pot, his mother, who was very old at the time, she passed away. And they had a funeral. And the funerals in Thailand many times are at the home. They bring the body. It's in, a, it's in a coffin. They bring the body and they put it in the living room. And it stays in the living room for at least three days. Because usually the funerals are about three days. And, that, and every day you have activities going on. The family, they feed all the guests that come. The guests will come all throughout the day. And then every night they have a ceremony where the monks come and they have this certain type of ceremony and another meal and, and all sorts of stuff. And it usually goes on for about three to four days because, you know, they want to give family and friends time to travel from other parts of, of the country and different, different places. Well, this funeral lasted for nine days. They had her body in the coffin in the living room for nine days. 
They had stuff going on all day, every day, late into the night, until one in the morning, two in the morning, three in the morning, for nine days. Now, what was interesting is that every evening, I was expected to go over and, and be present and to help. And, and after the first day or two, I realized not only was I supposed to be there, but I was supposed to help serve. And I, I would get, they had these little uh, things of water. And one of my responsibilities was passing out water to the guests, making sure they had everything. We had little snacks. Sometimes toward the end of the ceremony, I would pass out the snacks. And Grandpa, Grandpa Pot, he would go around and he would say to everybody, they have a, a word in Thai, furang, and it means whitey or white guy. And he would say, he would say, hey, look, the whitey's serving water to everybody. Hey, look, the whitey is serving. We've got a whitey uh, passing out snacks. And at first, I kind of took offense at it. You know, I thought he was being uh, demeaning. I thought he was being condescending. But after a while, and as I looked back on it later, I realized, and I, I think, actually, he was trying to honor me. Because to host a party, to host a celebration is very honorable. And not only is it honorable, but the bigger the celebration, the more the guests, the more honor there is. And, and I also learned that when he had a party, at first I just wanted, you know, I would, if I had people at my house, friends and people, I would tell them, y'all just stay here, we're going to go to the party. We've got to just go show up and we'll come back. So we'd go. And, and I realized quickly, I can't do that. The more people I bring, the happier he is. So I'd, I'd, I'd invite friends. If I knew a party was coming up, I'd call and invite all sorts of people. I'd try to see how many people can I show up with. And the bigger my entourage, the bigger my group of people when I showed up, you should see his face was just beaming. He loved it. He had no idea that they were coming, and he didn't care because he was the host. That means he got to host more people. You host more, that's more honor. That's more blessing. That's greater. So when I was doing this, passing out the water, and he was saying, hey, look at the whitey. He's serving water. I think he was trying to honor me to say, look, he is one of the hosts of this funeral, even though it was a sad time. He was letting me be a host. He was letting me take ownership and be a part of the family. He was saying, he's part of our family. He's one of us. He loved my mom. He loves us. He cares for us. Look, he's serving us. Look at him. He was, he was actually raising me up. I thought he was pushing me down. He was raising me up to the people around him. And the father is trying to do that with his son. He's trying to say, not just come in and be at the party, but come be a host of the party like you were meant to be. He's trying to honor the older son. And the son, he won't accept it. You know, the younger son in this story, we see the younger son through his humility he is reconciled as a son, as an heir. But the older son, through his pride and through his arrogance, he chooses to be a slave. The older son, he wants his father dead too, just like the younger son. He just won't admit it. He just won't say it out loud. Look back at the beginning of the chapter. This is a, I, I want to say this and... Maybe one more quick story. I want you to see that the, the, last, the last verse of this chapter, it ends with the father begging his son to come join the celebration, the festivities 
at this feast. And look back at the beginning, the first verse of the chapter, where this, this whole scene starts. This whole scene starts. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Eats with them. It, this whole scene starts with a feast. People sitting around a meal, eating, enjoying fellowship. And it ends with a father begging his son to come to the table. And we don't know what the son does, right? It doesn't tell us. It ends. It ends right there. And I think it, it ends like that on purpose. Jesus did that, first of all, because Jesus is an artist. And this is a, a wonderful, beautiful piece of art that Jesus has given us. But also because it's up to us. The decision is ours. We get to say how the story ends. Do we go in? Do we humble ourselves? Do we let go of our pride? Do we lower the walls? Do we accept shame? Or do we stay angry and arrogant and prideful and walk away? Do we want our own honor and our own glory over the honor and glory of the Father? There's a man, G.W. Ravensbury. He was a, an itinerant preacher back in the 1900s, early, mid-1900s, and he would go all over the nation. He would ride the train from town to town, and he would get off, and he would speak and preach and talk and teach at churches, and then get back on the train and go to the next one. And he did this for years and years. And um, he told a story about one time he was on a train, and there was a young boy there on the train with him, and he could see that this young boy was just very distraught, very distraught and upset. And so finally... Mr. Ravensbury, he couldn't take it anymore. He said, son, I can see that you're so upset. I can see something's wrong. Would you like, would you like to talk about it? Is there something I can, I can do for you? I'm, I'm a good listener. I'd love to pray for you. What is it? And he said, well, Mr. Ravensbury, a long time ago, me and my dad, we got in a big, huge fight. He said, all growing up, we fought. We were just at each other's necks. We were always arguing and fighting. And one day we had a fight to end all fights. And he said, honestly, I don't even remember what it was over. But I, he said some things he shouldn't have said. I said some things I shouldn't have said. I got angry, and I grabbed my stuff, and I started out the door, and my dad stopped me. He grabbed me by the shoulder, and he said, boy, if you walk out that door, don't you ever come back. And he said, I was so angry. My pride welled up within me. I jerked my arm away from him, and I kicked that door open, and I stormed out. And my dad yelled at me, don't let the shirt tail hit you on the way out the door. That was the last I've talked to my mom and dad in eight years. He said, I went all over the place. I ended up in the east, and I got in with the wrong people. We started doing things we shouldn't have done. Next thing you know, I'm in jail. And I've been in jail for the past five years. I just got out last week. But before I got out, I wrote my parents a letter. And I said, I know that you probably don't want to see me, but I would love to come home if you'll have me. And he said, I ended the letter by saying, I'll be on the train at this time. And if you want me to come home, if you'll accept me, would you please tie something white in the tree? The tree out front of the house, they had a big, huge oak tree. And he said, if I see that, that there's something there in the tree that's white, I'll know that, that it's okay and I'll, I'll come up to the house. But if there's nothing there... I understand, I'll know, and I'll just stay on the train and I'll keep going. 
And he said, Mr. Ravensbury, I don't know what to do. It's the next stop. When we come around the corner, I'm going to see my house. I don't know what to do. If there's nothing white in that tree, Mr. Ravensbury, I don't have anywhere to go. What am I going to do if there's nothing white in that tree? Mr. Ravensbury said he, he didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to do because he had no idea if there was going to be something in this tree. He just sat and prayed with the boy, held his hand. He didn't know. As they were getting closer and closer, finally the boy said, Mr. Ravensbury, it's coming. This is it. This is the last turn. We're going to be able to see the house. I can't, I can't do it. I can't look. Would you please look for me? He said, so he stood up. He went to the window, and he said he pressed his face just up against the window as tight as he could, trying to see, straining to look out of the window to see this tree. And he was thinking to himself, how am I going to know which house it is? How am I going to know? There, there's lots of houses. Which tree? I don't know. And he's just looking and looking, and he said, finally, they came around the corner. And he said, those parents must have emptied every towel, every sheet, every rag, every cotton ball, every single piece of thing, pillowcase, everything white that they had was in that tree. It was a big, huge white cotton ball flapping in the wind. Toilet paper, tissue paper, everything they could find. And he said, look, look, look at the... And he stood up and he looked and he said, when the boy saw that tree... He couldn't contain himself. He jumped off of the train while it was still moving. And the last vision he had of that boy was him running up the hill to meet his parents as they came storming down from the front porch to greet their boy, to hug him and love him and kiss him and accept him and welcome him home. That's the vision of God's love, his bounteous, wasteful love. Not just for the younger son, but for the older son. For the older son as well. When he came out of the, of the party to beg him. I, I have to tell you one more story. I'm sorry, one more. When we, when we were in college, we had this man, Mr. Ching. He was this uh, 80, 86-year-old Chinese man. Colleen, a lot of, Victor, some people know him. Um, he didn't speak hardly, hardly any English. One of our other friends at church, he was Chinese, grew up in America, was Chinese, so he spoke Chinese, so sometimes he would help us translate. And we would help Mr. Ching out. He lived right down the street from us. We'd take him to get groceries. We'd take him to the doctor. We'd help him uh, figure out what his, you know, his mail. He'd get things, all sorts of things. Sometimes he'd get scared because he was alone, so he would stay with us and spend the night. We'd come home from class, and we'd go in the house, and there's Mr. Ching doing Tai Chi in our living room, you know. And uh, he knew that we loved Totino's pizzas, those frozen pizzas. I'd come home, and I'd open up the freezer, and there'd be like eight Totino's pizzas. He had gone to the store and got them and put them in the refrigerator because he knew we loved them. One time I wrecked my bike real bad. I had a scraped-up knee. I come in. There's Mr. Ching. He sits me down, and he doesn't speak English. Oh, 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 I help you, help you, help you. That's all he had was like five words. He sits me down. He pulls my shorts up. He sees my knee, and he's, you know, through communication with arms and movements and things, I realize he's going he's gonna to take care of my knee. I have no idea what he's going to do, but he's going to take care of it. So I'm sitting there. I'm waiting to see what's going to happen. He spits on my knee <laughs> and rubs. This is a fresh scrape, bleeding. He's just rubbing on it. Thank you, Mr. Ching. Thank you. Anyways, Mr. Ching, he had a family in China. And back in the, I guess in the late 50s or 60s, he had been assisting the American government with 
um, we never got all the details. Somehow he was helping the American government. And whatever he was doing got him in big trouble in China, and he had to get out. And so somehow our government, I guess, helped him get to America. He ended up in College Station, but his family had stayed in China. And he had, he had four boys. He had four boys, and his oldest boy was like 11 when he left China. And he hadn't seen his oldest boy for 40 years. And one day, we meet up with Mr. Ching, and he is with his son. We didn't even know his son was coming. He knew, and so his son spoke a little bit of English, so we get this story. The son had showed up in Bryan, Texas, got off of a bus, and didn't know where to go. He knew his dad was somewhere there in Bryan College Station, but didn't know where. Mr. Ching knew his son was coming, but didn't know when and how. So through this crazy turn of events, they end up, his son ends up on the street where Mr. Ching lived but didn't know, the ad, didn't know which house it was, didn't know where it was. Mr. Ching didn't have a car, didn't drive. He had a bicycle that he used, but most, lots of times he walked too. He hadn't seen his son in 40 years. He said he came walking around the corner of the street. And he turned and he looked down the street and he saw in the middle of the road was his son who he hadn't seen in 40 years, but he said, immediately, I knew him. This is all coming through a translator. And the son saw his father, an 86-year-old man, and they ran to each other in the middle of the street in College Station, Texas, and hugged. (laughs) They hadn't seen each other in 40 years. And as they're telling us this story, I wish I had a video camera. At that time, this was like 1999. I didn't have an iPhone. But if I had that on video, the joy... And the happiness that was on their faces was phenomenal. It was so wonderful. It was glorious. It was glorious. And they were sitting there side by side. They didn't know each other, but they knew each other. It was wonderful. This picture in front of me, sitting there right in front of me, a father and a son reunited after 40 years. And the love and the joy, such a wonderful picture. This, this is the love that God has for us. And we have the joy and the blessing of sharing that love with others. And this is, what the, this is how the kingdom breaks into the world. This is how people will know what God looks like. When we go out into the world, when we go to our jobs, when we go to school, when we go wherever we go to the store, on the street, whatever it is, that we express this wonderful, extravagant, wasteful love of God with his children in this world. We get to do that. We get to be the father if we want to. We get to share that love. We get to welcome people in with open arms. We get to cover the tree in white and let everyone know that they're always welcome back. They're always welcome back in the kingdom, in the family And at the table, there's a feast, a wonderful feast. So I bless you with that this week. I bless me with that. As we go out into the world, may we be that for the people around us. May we express that wasteful, luxurious, bounteous love of Christ, of God, with everyone around us. Amen.